Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. My name's Stephen Baker. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're here for the first time, we're really glad to have you. And I hope I can meet you when, uh, when we're done. Well, Happy New Year. Do you mean it? really is easy to take on the, the pagan, unbelieving cynicism of our culture, isn't it? And all we can think about, we make all of our jokes about how terrible the last two years have been, right? And how terrible this one's going to be, or whatever. So I just want to encourage you. Jesus Christ is on his throne, putting all of his enemies under his feet. I don't know what this year will be like, and neither do you. Some of us, perhaps, will be dead by the end of this year. There will be suffering, there will be pain. There will be good things. All of that is in God's hands. All right? So when I say Happy New Year, I mean it. Not being ironic (laughs) or cynical. And I hope you won't be either. Hope in God. Well, it is the first Sunday of the new year. And typically we have a New Year's sermon. Makes sense. Uh, But this year we're not. Um, this year, we are continuing our, our kind of Advent preaching schedule, and we're into Matthew 2, and we're going to preach, I'm going to preach today on a passage that um, is not your typical warm and fuzzy Christmas card passage of Scripture, all right? Matthew chapter 2. And I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. Part of this chapter, Pastor Bailey will preach next week, Lord willing, the first part about the Magi. We're going to come back to that. But I have to read this to make everything else make sense. All right? Now, the thing about Matthew 2 is that it reminds us that Christmas is not sentimental at all. We have turned it into sentimental. We've turned it into something like um, your great aunt's uh, fruitcake. You know, sickening sweet. Sugar plums and whatever those are. And happy, bright, merry, cheerful, and yet, and it is, but it is only those things because it comes in the midst of such great darkness, incredible darkness. What we're going to read today is appallingly dark, but Jesus, as we read in John 1, remember? 
the light shines where? In the darkness. What's the point of light if there's no darkness? There's darkness, and Jesus comes into this darkness, and he shines. And it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Do you remember uh, we've, we sing the, uh, the Christmas carol, Little Town of Bethlehem? It's a sweet little Christmas carol, right? There's a line in there that we sing over, and we're just thinking of the fact that they didn't have electric light, lights on the streets or something. Remember the line? In thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Jesus came into the darkness. And the whole point of Christmas is, that, is what the angel Gabriel said to Mary. You will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And that's wonderful. But it's nothing but sickening sweet if you don't acknowledge that. So turn with me or look on the screen. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's a, it's a bit of a long one. But it's the word of God and forever true. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king... Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And now verse 13, which is where we're really focusing this morning. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, 
Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. So, Tim's going to talk about the Magi, but you see how you can't really talk about what happens next without talking a little bit about the Magi. And so what's going on here? Well, you see that these Magi, Tim will talk about them, they're from the East, and they know what's going on, somehow they've followed the stars, somehow they had a prophecy either directly from the Holy Spirit or maybe from the book of Daniel. These men are probably from Iraq, old Persia, Babylon, right? And there's a long history of God's people being there because of the exile back in the Old Testament. And so somehow they have some information and they see this star and they come into Jerusalem. How do you picture this? Again, I'm not... I'm, I'm not going to preach the sermon about the Magi, right? But how do you picture this? On the Christmas cards, what do you see? Three men on camels. It's always three. And they're, just, and they're alone. And they're on camels, right? Okay, get that out of your mind entirely. We have no idea how many there were. And they weren't alone. They're carrying millions of dollars of treasure. Okay? Millions of dollars of treasure they're carrying. So they're not alone. And they've traveled about 500 miles. Walking. I'm sure camels were involved, you know. 500 miles. They're not doing that alone, carrying millions of dollars of treasure, all right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a retinue. It's a it's a crowd. And so when they come into Jerusalem, they don't just kind of sneak into Jerusalem. Everybody knows they're there. And they come first saying, what? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. And notice what Herod does. You see verse 3? When Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
All right, so who is this Herod? The problem is there's three Herods named in the New Testament, right? This is the first one. This is Herod the Great. And Herod is not like a first name, all right? Uh, like Harold, you know, Harry. Herod is the title of the office, of the dynasty, like Pharaoh was in, in Egypt. So you had all kinds of pharaohs, you have all kinds of kings of England, you have all kinds of Herods. This is Herod the Great. Then you've got another Herod called Herod Antipas. He's the one who killed John the Baptist, had his head delivered on a plate. Remember him? Then you have the Herod in the book of Acts, who stands up and gives a speech, and all the people say, Ah, oh, the voice of a God, not of a man. And what happened to him? He was eaten with worms and died. So the Herods are not great leaders. But this is Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an evil man. Herod the Great uh, was half Jew. His mother was Jewish. His father was an Edomite. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Remember Esau, Jacob and Esau? Jacob have I loved, Esau, the Lord says, have I hated. Esau and, and the descendants, his, his descendants, the Edomites, were always the enemies of God's people. This man is an illegitimate um, king in Jerusalem. He has no right to sit on this throne. In fact, he is given this throne as a reward for work that he had done, some kind of service he had performed during a previous war, and the Roman emperor and the Senate gave him this, the throne of Jerusalem in return. The day that he was given the throne of Jerusalem, he walked out of the Senate in Rome, walked up the hill, and made sacrifice to Jupiter. Jupiter is the god of Rome, the chief god of Rome. Herod is a ruthless man. In the process of his rise to power and after, he killed his father-in-law, one of his fathers-in-law, because he had ten. He had ten wives. He killed two of his wives, all right? And he killed two of his sons because he was paranoid always afraid of someone else rising to take his place. And so you read that in verse 3, right? When Herod the king heard this, heard what? Uh, the Magi come, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not one who will be appointed king of the Jews, not the one who will somehow connive and scheme and, and plot and become king of the Jews, but he's born king of the Jews. This is a rightful heir of the throne of his father, David. And Herod knows this. Herod knows what this means. He knows he's a fake king, right? And here you have the king, born by right, king of the Jews. 
And how does he respond when Herod heard this? He was troubled. He is disturbed. He is terrified. He knows what this means. This is a real threat. But think of this. It's a baby. It's a baby. There's a place in the Proverbs that says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. All right? Terrified at the rustling of a leaf. And here you have a wicked man, terrified because why? Because a baby is born. Before this child would grow up and be old enough to be a king, Herod will be long dead. But he's terrified. He's terrified. And then it says this in verse 3, Herod, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, terrified, disturbed, and what? And all Jerusalem with him. Why is all Jerusalem also troubled? Why do you think? Are they troubled because their Messiah has been born? They probably don't quite know that yet. Why are they troubled? They're troubled because Herod is troubled. And when, you're, when you are subjects of a tyrant, paranoid king, you have no idea what's going to set him off. And once he's set off, you have no idea what's coming next. Right? Some of you children know what that's like because that's what your father's like. Dad's troubled. That can only mean one thing. That means trouble for me. So you have the story, you have the Magi, Tim will preach on that. Go to verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Herod, again, ruthless, paranoid, jealous, incredibly powerful, a wicked man. There's a picture I want to show you in relation to Herod. You guys have that? Can you see that? It's kind of fuzzy. It's fuzzy because this is three miles off, this hill. This hill is called the Herodium, the Herodium. And a big part of that hill wasn't there until Herod built it. Well, he didn't build it. He had his slaves build it. And part of that cone, kind of looks like a volcano, doesn't it? Is actually built around a fortress. And the fortress isn't there anymore. It used to stand out the, the flat top. It used to have a fortress on top of there, towers. And part of it sunk down into the hill that he had built up around it, okay? You know where this picture is taken from? Bethlehem. In fact, so 
you go to the Beth, you go to the Bethlehem Visitors website, right? The tourism website, and they talk about this thing, and they say if you want to go see the Herodium and you're in Bethlehem, uh, walk down Manger Street. And from Manger Street, it'll open up and you can see the Herodium, right? This is, so Jesus is three miles away. Jesus born in the shadow of this. Isn't that crazy? All right, you can go back to the Bible now. I just thought that was neat. So an angel of the Lord, after the Magi are gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Herod wants to destroy the baby. Again, he's paranoid. He's a threat. And so God sends an angel to whom? Who's he sends an angel to? To Joseph. And he says to Joseph, get up. It's a, he comes to him in a dream, so it's nighttime. He's sleeping. Get up. Right? Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to come back. And what does it say? Verse 14, so Joseph, what did he do? He got up. This <laughs> is... This is what you do when the angel tells you to get up. And it says he got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Now, this is not the point of this sermon, but this is a beautiful little snapshot, isn't it? The angel comes to Joseph. Joseph is the head of the home. Joseph is the man of the house. And he says to Joseph, Joseph, you need to protect Mary and the baby. Get up right now and go. And he doesn't think about it. He doesn't argue. He doesn't wait till daylight. He gets up and he goes. This is what a good man would do. Men are made to protect their wife and their children. This is what this man does. While it's still dark, while it's still night, he gets up and he leaves for Egypt. And it says he remained there until the death of Herod. Um, Herod's grandson, or whatever it is, his great-grandson, in the book of Acts, it says, remember, I talked about him a second ago, he said, they said, voice of a God, not of a man, and he, God struck him, and he was eaten by worms and died, remember that? Um, Herod the Great's death was even worse than that. And I will not give you the gory, gory details, all right? It was awful. Bob, you might be interested to read it. <laughs> it's in Josephus, right? The historian, he describes it. And it's awful. I mean to tell you, it's awful. And so the Bible says, well, when Herod died, right? But then history tells us what kind of death this kind of man gets. So Herod dies, and then 
This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then verse 16. Well, you know, hold on. Let me mention this. Think about Jesus. He's a baby, right? And even as a baby, he's suffering. He's suffering. He's being persecuted. He has to be woken up in the middle of the night to to walk to Egypt from Bethlehem. His whole life is a life of suffering. He, as, as Isaiah 53 says, he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and it started the moment he was born. Born in a, in a cattle barn, laid in a trough, persecuted from almost the moment of his birth. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be persecuted. from the beginning of his life on, and we can rest in him. We'll come back to that in a minute. Look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, because they didn't go back to him and tell him where the baby was, so he can come and worship him, right? He became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. This is the dark side of Christmas. Was this an accident? How do we know this wasn't just an an accident of fate? Because of the prophecy. Because of what Matthew says. The Holy Spirit says through Matthew, this happened to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. Chapter 31. All right. God was not asleep. God did not somehow not see this coming. In fact, he prophesied it, which means what does that mean? He allowed it to happen? That's what we would like to say. This happened according to his decree, his will. All suffering is under the control of God. The evil acts of evil men are under the control of God. And that should comfort you. But some of us don't want that. We don't want, that doesn't seem like it it would comfort us. We would rather it be that the evil acts of evil men are random, right? Are, Are not under the control of God. But is that really more comfort to you? That God's watching, but he's, can't do anything about it, right? There's nothing he can do. Oh, evil men doing evil things. What do I do now? 
No, that's no comfort. It is no comfort. Don't twist God into a, a, a pitiful, powerless little man who can see bad things are going to happen but can do nothing about it. The greatest evil that ever happened was when his son grows up, lives a sinless life, and wicked men kill him. Was that an accident? Did he allow that to happen? No. And your suffering and mine and everyone's is nothing compared to that. And so, Jeremiah the prophet. And Herod saw the Magi didn't come back. He doesn't know where the baby is so that he could pinpoint strike, right? And so he carpet bombs. He carpet bombs Bethlehem. Just so he can get that one baby. Now, Bethlehem is not very big. It wasn't very big then. It's not very big now. So how many boys are there? Um, Two years and under? Not, Not very many. It does say Bethlehem and all its vicinity because he's being safe. Right? He's going to broaden the, the, the scope, and it's two years and under, under, and people think, well, that mean, must mean this happens two years after Jesus was born, and I don't think it actually was. It actually doesn't work with the chronology, okay? What we have here is Herod being extra careful. How do you know how old a baby is? How many, how many of you have two-year-old children? And they're starting to what? What do you start to do when you're two? You're walking. You're talking. Right? It's like a benchmark. And I think Jesus was much, much younger than this, actually. But Herod is being safe. If you see any child, any little boy who's walking and talking, kill him. And all the younger ones. This is what Herod is is in his mind. He's being safe. He's paranoid. He's enraged. He's terrified. He's troubled. He's not being very precise here. He's trying to cover all of his bases. If you're two years old or under, and if you're a boy, you're dead. Can you picture this? What would this have been like? How do you think this got carried out? What is Herod doing? He's sending soldiers, isn't he? He's going door to door, isn't he? Aren't they? And they're knocking on the door. Come out. Bring all your kids. Come on. And once it becomes clear what the intention is, What do you think the parents are doing? 
How many parents, how many fathers, how many mothers do you think died? What would you do if the government came and said, bring out your kids, line them up? What would you do, Dad? What would you do? What would you do? We, we know what the mothers would do. This was not clean. It takes a few little words, it takes a line, right, in Matthew 2, but think about it. This is horrific. Now, killing babies is a very, in the history of the world, a very normal thing. It is what pagans do. Pagans kill babies. All through the ancient world, infanticide was just nothing. Nothing. An everyday occurrence, okay? That doesn't mean it was not terrible for the mothers. But sometimes it was the mothers who did it, right? The, the empire of Rome was filled with infanticide, perpetrated by the fathers and mothers of the children. In the, in the empire of Rome at this very time, right, if a, if a baby was born, let's say it's a girl. I don't want a girl. I want an heir. I want a boy. All right. Well, they didn't know what it was going to be before. They didn't have ultrasound. They didn't know it was going to be a girl, but here it is. It's a girl. So what would they do? Well, they were very scrupulous and careful. So they wouldn't kill the baby because that'd be like bad luck, right? So they'd go and lay it on the hillside and walk away. They didn't kill the baby. Completely commonplace. In the East, in China, right? In India. Rife with infanticide. They'd throw babies into the river uh, as, as an offering to the God. All through history, this is what you see. This is what pagans do. In Rome, when the babies, uh, when the, when the church began and Christians began to multiply in the empire, right? The Christians would take those little babies who'd been thrown out on the hillside to die. They'd go find them. Every day they'd go check and they'd collect them and they would adopt them and they would raise them as their own. That's what Christians do. But pagans, for pagans, life is cheap. So what does that say about us? 
What does that say about us? We are dripping in blood as a nation, aren't we? And it goes way back. It goes back before the 70s. Think about Tokyo in World War II. Or Hiroshima and Nagasaki. How many died in those bombings, do you know? Hmm? Oh, <laughs> you were talking to someone. 205,000. How many babies did, um, did Herod kill? Let's say 100. That's probably way high. How many men, women, and children were killed in Tokyo, Hiroshima, and Nagasaki? And what kind of men were they? Non-combatant men. Old men. Sick men. Lame men. And their women and the children. And we rise up in our righteousness, right? But not just us. What about Stalin? 60 million, Mao, 40 to 100 million. All in the last less than 100 years. But then you know where I'm going, don't you? Worldwide, 73.3 million abortions a year. I know that doesn't mean anything to you. You can't even imagine what I just said. Since the 70s, 1.6 billion. Many of those with surgical so-called surgical abortions, right? What an antiseptic, awful term for ripping babies out of their mother's wombs. Surgery? Really? But how many more were chemical? How many more were IUDs? You know what I... No, sorry. IUDs. If you don't know what that is, look it up. An IUD functions by preventing a fertilized egg from attaching to its mother's womb. It doesn't prevent the fertilized egg, the fertilization of the egg. Do you hear me? What about the pill? One of the ways the pill works is by preventing the attachment of a baby to its mother's womb. But we rise up in our righteousness, don't we? Gather the robes around yourself. Ascend on high and condemn Herod.
Herod's the bad guy. So here's a question for you, for us. Who are you willing to slaughter for the sake of your kingdom? Let's start with the literal, right? How many babies are you willing to slaughter for your kingdom? But it's really more than that, isn't it? How many are you willing to slaughter your wife? You know how Jesus says um, in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it was said, you shall not commit murder, but if you what? If you what? Hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered him? How many people are you willing to slaughter for the sake of your kingdom? How many people are you willing to trample on? To use? Husbands. What is your wife to you? Wives, what is your husband to you? A means to an end? Someone to use to get what you want? Think about all the ways that down in our hearts we are very much like Herod, both literally and figuratively. We're paranoid. We're always trying to protect ourselves. Always afraid of someone who's out to get us. Always looking out for number one. And yeah, willing literally to kill. The Apostle Paul says in, in Galatians, he says, if you bite and devour one another, be careful that you're not consumed by one another. Right? Biting and devouring. Using your words to destroy people. Herod a bad guy? Is Herod a bad guy? Yeah. So am I. So are you. Now there's another side to this. And we need to own this side that I've just talked about. We are the darkness. 
our nation is the darkness. We have Herod in our hearts, <laughs> right? Uh, all of us caught, cut from the same piece of cloth. This event historically has been called the slaughter of the innocents. A slaughter of the innocents. Now we know that technically speaking, no child is innocent. Meaning we are conceived in sin. And if a child dies, if you die, if I die, if we die, it's because death has passed to all men because all have sinned. Okay? And yet these, these little boys did nothing to, to deserve this, humanly speaking. And this is a travesty. And this is a tragedy. And this is awful. And that means that the women, the mothers and the fathers of these little boys suffered greatly because of it. Right? You can imagine this. They suffered greatly. And I know that some of you have suffered greatly because of your children. Many of you have lost children. Many of you. For one reason or another, because some kind of genetic problem, some kind of unexplained miscarriage or stillbirth. Or maybe because you killed your child. Jesus knows your suffering. He knows it. And as I said earlier, he has always known suffering. That's why he's able to help you with yours. The, in the Gospels, um, you know, the books of the Bible that talk about the life of Jesus, right? In the Gospels, as far as I know, there are only two emotions ever ascribed to our Lord Jesus as a man. Only two. Compassion and anger. Compassion and anger. The bulk of them are compassion. <laughs> right? Almost always when it describes the emotional life of our Lord, right? It's compassion. He saw them and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd and he felt compassion for them, that kind of thing. Over and over and over again. You have Jesus looking at people who are suffering and feeling compassion for them. But it's never empty compassion. Whenever it says he felt compassion, it then says, so he did something, right? Fed the, the multitudes who were hungry. Stopped and taught them. Healed them. He always did something 
when he felt compassion. He didn't pay someone else to do it for him. And so I'm saying to you that Jesus feels compassion for your suffering. He sees it. He knows it. He's been through it himself. He grew up knowing that his birth had caused this. In God's plan, yes, but compassion. The other emotion is anger. And when he's angry, one of the times, you have the time in the temple where he, he makes a whip. I've always thought that must be the most perfect whip ever in the universe, right? I mean, God made it. He made a whip. Whips are designed to do something. They're designed to hurt. And he made a whip and he drove out the money changers. The other time is when the, the, the uh, disciples, all the people are bringing to Jesus their children. And the disciples are saying, get those kids out of here. Remember this? And then Jesus is angry. Not at the children. But at the disciples. Compassion and anger are really two sides of the same coin. You can't have compassion without having anger. Anger at the, the wickedness causing the suffering for which you're compassionate. And you have all of this in Jesus. We read in Psalm 147 that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. Is that sentimental? Is that sickening sweet? No. No. Because you're brokenhearted. But he heals the brokenhearted. And he binds up their wounds. All right? So go to Jesus. Repent of your sins. You have caused suffering, just like Herod did. And you have experienced suffering from other people causing suffering. This is the world we live in. This is what it means that Christ came in the darkness. So repent. Turn away from your own sin. And trust God for the, the binding up of your brokenheartedness that has come from other people's sin. You take Jesus out of that and you have nothing but darkness.
The light shines in the darkness. And it's here for you to see. Come to him. And Happy New Year. Let's pray. Father, would you please open our eyes to our sin and all the many ways that we cause suffering and even death on the people around us. Forgive us, we pray. We are, we are born like this. And so please help us. And help us to receive from you compassion, Lord Jesus, to receive it, to embrace your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.